from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. For the last 12 years, coal generation in America has been in steady decline. When President Obama entered office, coal was the undisputed king on the grid. But as he neared the end of his first term, it was clear that the resource had peaked. Environmental regulations, particularly during the Obama administration, were starting to force coal plant operators to make decisions about whether to continue operating those plants with higher going forward costs and capital costs or retire them. Coal plants were being outcompeted by gas as well. By the time the Trump era started, coal had been dethroned by natural gas. And then renewables came next. In 2022, wind, solar, and hydro collectively generated more electricity than the nation's coal plants. There's no escaping it. That coal fleet is getting quite creaky. Yeah, coal plants are just getting older. I mean, the operations and maintenance on these plants continues to go up as they get older. Sort of, They're designed for a useful life of 30 to 40 years, and many of these coal plants were getting into their 50s or 60s even. But there are still hundreds of coal plants in operation around the U.S. And in 2017, Michael Boyle and a team of analysts at the policy firm Energy Innovation wanted to know how many of those aging coal plants were more expensive to run than wind and solar. Uh, so at that point, we started to see uh, a need to analyze this cost dynamic. And yeah, we were surprised to, to find that it was pretty ubiquitous already in 2017. By ubiquitous, he means that 60% of coal plants were uneconomic compared to renewables that year. And that trend only kept growing with time. Yeah, so two years later, we found that the trend had been exacerbated, that now 72% of coal plants were uneconomic on a going-forward basis compared to new renewable electricity. And then in 2022, you ran the analysis again, and the results were stunning. What did you find? Yeah, we found that the trend is now virtually universal. 99 or over 99% of coal-fired power plants are more expensive on a going-forward cost, basically, than new renewables. So there's one coal plant in America that's cheaper than renewables? Yes, it's a coal plant in Wyoming, and, and the margins are quite small, um, but it's one of the newest plants and uh, most efficient as well. Are we getting closer to the reality of a post-coal grid in America? Yes, absolutely. You know, renewables are eating into the market share of coal power plants. I think we're seeing the operational characteristics of coal plants. They're just not as valuable to the grid as the newer technologies. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, the coal cost crossover. There's only one coal plant in America that's cheaper to run than renewables, but hundreds of them are still operating. We'll dig into the nuances of the transition and why economics alone aren't enough to push the oldest, dirtiest plants all into retirement. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. 
Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Michael Boyle is a senior director of electricity policy at Energy Innovation, a nonpartisan energy and climate think tank. He co-authored the latest coal cost crossover report with a few of his colleagues at Energy Innovation and the University of California, Berkeley. Now, as you heard, this is the third edition of that analysis since 2017. The latest version, released in January of this year, was different from the others because the analysis coincided with a pretty transformative policy development in the U.S. The motion is adopted. Tonight, Democrats celebrating a hard-fought victory, passing the Inflation Reduction Act, which makes massive investments in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. It is really a cause for celebration. A large piece of the IRA includes 10-year extensions of tax credits that make wind, solar, hydro, and batteries more attractive. So we were kind of holding on to it to see what are we going to analyze and how is it going to shake out? We wanted to include those incentives if they passed. There was also something new in the package that further hastens the crossover. A 10% bonus on a tax credit if a renewables project is built in a so-called energy community. Which you can roughly understand as a community that depends economically or has depended economically on the fossil fuel industry um, with special attention to places where coal mines and coal plants have closed. And so we took those two combined impacts and applied them to new renewable projects. We looked at projects that are in the region around the coal plant, sort of the utility service territory, and then ones that are right next to the coal plant and sort of hyper-local, taking siting into account. Uh, And that's how we found this trend to be so ubiquitous. Some of the most cost-effective projects now are right in those same communities that are uh, seeing transition away from coal as a potentially detrimental economic impact. So we're hoping to highlight some of the opportunity there as well. So what's happening in the renewable space that is making them more competitive aside from the policy support? We've seen some short-term hiccups with supply chain issues, but generally renewables have just become more and more competitive over the last decade. So What is happening now in terms of cost declines and performance improvements in renewables? Well, I think you you sort of nailed the the two main factors, right? The the decline in capital costs, the cost of just producing and assembling the materials associated with the projects, as well as improvements in efficiency, right? Bigger wind turbines, bigger blades, higher swept areas, and then on the solar side, just greater efficiency, that's the basic dynamic. We expect a lot of these short-term supply hiccups to to abate in the in the medium term. And so if someone's thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with my coal plant? What am I going to do to kind of replace a lot of that energy? Uh, they're not probably thinking about what's happening this year or next year. It's more of a long-term plan over the next five to 10 years. So that's the approach that we took. Battery storage is an important piece of this economic analysis as well. So you found that 99% of coal plants are more expensive than new wind and solar, but also the savings from investing in that wind and solar can help finance energy storage tied to those plants. Talk about that finding. 
Yeah, so in our report, we look at every single coal plant, right? And so we can come up with a, a difference in cost. You know, some coal plants are kind of close at the margin to the cost of new renewables, but a lot of the coal plants, more than uh, 80%, are at least 30% more expensive to operate on a going forward basis than the new renewables. So that headroom creates uh, the ability to also finance or pay for additional battery storage. For about uh, 30% of the coal plants, you actually have a large enough cost difference that you can finance 100% of the storage nameplate capacity sort of equal to the capacity of the coal plant in addition to the renewable projects that would replace the annual generation. So you can get pretty close to um, a lot of the capacity value that a coal plant provides. We looked at how much storage you could add for every plant and still keep it economic. There's enough savings in this equation to pay for 137 gigawatts, which is about 60% of the nameplate coal fleet capacity. So that's a lot of four-hour battery storage that there's room to play with here. The jaw-dropping cost declines in solar and battery storage has been a steady story for the last couple of decades, but in particular the last decade. And so everybody in the industry is aware that this crossover has been happening and it's only accelerating. But the the, the obvious question here is, now that we have... Uh, all but one of the country's coal plants more expensive to operate than new renewables. Why haven't utilities transitioned these plants already? Yeah, that really is the key question, Stephen. And I think it really starts with the existing and historical utility business model, which is around making and maintaining capital investments. Essentially, most of these coal plants are still owned and operated by monopoly utilities. And those utilities uh, have a vested interest in continuing to earn profit on these power plants. You can think of it kind of like being locked into a lease or a mortgage. Like you, you've got, you, you, owe, you still owe the bank, you still owe your shareholders and your, your creditors money on this coal plant investment that you said was going to last another 10 to 20 years especially where they've made hundreds of million dollar investments in pollution controls to keep them operating. So that's profit that's built into shareholder expectations. Now you're asking them to shut that down. That creates a lot of uncertainty. Is the regulator going to continue allowing me to earn on an asset that's no longer operating? Like the regulatory standard is used and useful. That's not a used and useful thing. So it creates a lot of risk to to accelerate retirement dates for these plants. They got to figure out the finance on the back end. And thankfully, we, we can get into like what tools there are to kind of deal with that dynamic. And I think there are more and more policies that can help with that. But that's the main barrier. The traditional utility business model is only one of a handful of factors keeping coal in the mix. After the break, we'll talk about a few more of them and the regulatory and financial tools needed to make the transition easier. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? 
Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, critic CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. So there are a couple of other really important ones. One is reliability, actual reliability and the perception of reliability. And some of these coal plants still are very important for maintaining the reliability of the grid. Uh, So how does the fear of losing these coal plants play into the lack of action and transitioning the plants? That's exactly right. Uh, reliability is sort of the other chief concern, I would say. And in some cases, it's uh, a sort of proven, genuine concern. In, in other cases, it may not be. And I will say that utilities hold most of the cards on this question, right? They are the experts vis-a-vis their regulators and many of their stakeholders on system reliability, and they want to be conservative. And so they can use reliability as a way of either justifying continued operation of the coal plant or not. So I have sort of two opposing examples that can help highlight this. One is the North Valmy plant in Nevada. That plant is slated to retire in 2025, and Envy Energy has announced that they're going to replace that generation and capacity with solar and storage, two solar and storage projects on site. One 250 megawatts solar project and one 350 megawatt solar project and about 480 megawatts of storage. So this is kind of a more or less one-to-one replacement of renewables to uh, a coal-fired power plant. Um, And the utility is fully behind it. Now contrast that with the Rush Island plant in the Ameren service territory. Uh, So that power plant, uh, Ameren decided they wanted to retire it uh, in September of last year, partially due to the expense of adding pollution controls to comply with EPA regulations, and those were going to cost ratepayers up to a billion dollars. Now, MISO stepped in and said, no, you have to keep that plant online until we make some upgrades to the transmission system uh, that address some of the voltage support issues we have in this area of the grid. So that's one area where even the utility wanted to retire the coal plant, and the, and the system operator said, no, you know, we, we're going to keep it operating against your will, against customers' will for another year, and then we'll as soon as we have the reliability resources we need, we can retire it. So there are legitimate retirement and reliability concerns uh, that pop up, but a lot of these clean energy resources can help address those as well. The other one that stands out for me is the extraordinarily long interconnection queues we see around the country that can delay a lot of development of new renewables, and it can delay projects by years. How do these ridiculous interconnection queues stall this transition? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. This is a major issue for the energy transition writ large. Projects are waiting four to five years, maybe longer if they're getting into the queue now. You know, projects don't have certainty as to where they can interconnect at the least cost. So one project will pick multiple points of interconnection and clog up the queue even more. It's Right now, it's a downward spiral. It's a vicious cycle. But you're right. If you don't know that you can get the replacement generation online, it's really hard to time these sort of uh, coal to renewables transition plans. And one of the things we wanted to highlight with this report, again, with the local renewables, is you can potentially reuse the interconnection rights that utilities have at these coal plants and transfer them to new renewables that can get ahead of the queue and not see the same delays as the projects that are trying to join the existing transmission system. Let's dig into the debt piece. This is a pretty fascinating conundrum. Uh, Collectively, these coal plants hold about $176 billion in debt, and there are a lot of efforts to figure out how to what to do with this debt. Uh, and the federal government has created some programs in the Inflation Reduction Act to address this specifically. What is out there that will help alleviate this debt burden uh, for utilities so that they can make these decisions faster? So I would put the tools that are available to utilities in two buckets. There are state policies that address utility debt called securitization. And that's something that Uh, has been used already in Michigan, uh, has been part of a deal in New Mexico, uh, and authorizing legislation has been passed in several other states, including Colorado, that allow the utility to essentially get much, much lower cost financing to deal with any remaining capital costs associated with the plant. So you essentially refinance whatever money is left owed to the utility stretch it out over 20, 30 years, kind of like refinancing your house or your mortgage so you have a much lower monthly payment. And then you can use that savings to reinvest in a cheaper electricity resource so the consumers get a lower cost of energy. At the end of the day, the utilities can recycle their capital more quickly into new uh, rate base, essentially, uh, to the extent they're allowed to own that generation. And that, that can be a point of contention in many places. The the key there, though, is most states feel they need authorizing legislation to do that. So it's available in some places. In other places, the commission doesn't want to move with additional authorizing legislation. So it's a good tool for some places, not such a good tool for others. The tool that was made available in the Inflation Reduction Act was the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program under the Loan Program Office. Your, your old energy gang colleague, Jigger Shaw, is heading that office. And uh, they can use that government-backed loan authority to provide low-cost financing for new infrastructure investments. So these, say, renewable and renewable and storage hybrid projects can also reinvest in um, the energy infrastructure at the site of the plant. Kind of a broad, flexible financing authority that can help uh, reduce the cost of replacement. So, you know, it may may not be the same tool of securitization, but it's it's kind of, in practice, a really similar tool, right? You reduce the amount of capital financing the utility has to do on its own, and you can make this deal work. Uh, you can make it work for the utility shareholders, and you can make it work for customers. This seems to be like one of the most fundamental pieces of this transition. Do you agree that the financing piece is most important? Yeah, I do. There's plenty of new investment Uh, available to all these players and plenty of wins to go around. 
that you really just have to work through the mechanics of how do we refinance and move beyond these coal plants, and there's a win-win-win. So, of course, the resistance to shutting down these coal plants has a lot to do with um, worker transitions and fear of tax base being lost. And you actually found that replacing coal plants with local wind or solar could drive almost $590 billion in local investment, which could support tax revenue, job creation. What would that economic activity look like in communities where they might have a a huge amount of their tax base and jobs coming from coal? Yeah, I think the new renewable development opportunity is one of the main themes we wanted to highlight in this report. The truth is the jobs are not the same, right? The the renewable projects, they bring a lot of short-term employment opportunities associated with construction, but the long-term operation and maintenance jobs that come with new clean energy projects don't really come close to the amount of jobs that are supported by the operation and maintenance of a coal plant. That's one of the reasons they're so economic, right? Once you build them, the marginal cost of operating a solar or wind farm is 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 fractions of a cent, you know, on a customer's bill. So we acknowledge that, but at the same time, that tax base equation is so important. And that's where we think there's a lot of potential to at least help support the, the beginning of an economic transition plan for these communities, right? To to make sure that there's funding at the municipal and county level for basic services, um, you know, healthcare services or roads, schools, et cetera, et cetera, just so that there's a positive economic story that's a part of this. We also think, and we didn't examine this in a major way in this report, but cheap, clean energy can be the foundation of an economic development strategy. There's there's all kinds of industries that we think can sprout up to support further job growth if you have this sort of clean energy anchor tenant. So highlighting the the cost savings for sure for ratepayers, but also this can be the beginning of an energy-based community redevelopment strategy. So you're there in Washington, D.C. at a meeting of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. These these are regular meetings that happen that deal with the wonkiest of the wonky subject around utility business models and grid management and grid reliability. And so when you come with, you know, findings like this, what are the people in the utility industry saying to you? I mean, are they making a lot of excuses? Are they saying like, yes, we understand that this is happening? Are the what is the mix of reactions that you're getting along the spectrum of um, of denial? to delay to acceptance. <laughs> yeah, uh, the full spectrum. Um, I love I love Nehruk. I love being with my people, my utility wonks. Um, you get the full range, right? There's the tendency to hear about the findings and the immediate reaction is you are, you energy innovation, you're misleading and you're hiding the ball on, on reliability. We, we created a very transparent, relatively simple analysis to show how this dynamic has evolved over time. You know, people can draw their own conclusions about how that impacts the industry. We try to provide some helpful guidance to policymakers. And so, yeah, we, we explicitly, you know, address that in the paper. But if the headlines that some folks are reading say, you can replace 99% of coal for renewables and save customers money, um, you know, with no caveats, then, then yeah, that, that's not the full story. Others are very excited, right? Others are sort of thinking about the energy transition. 
proactively, and they want tools like this to try to identify win-wins um, and work with utilities uh, on to finding these opportunities. You know, the message is, is penetrating, right, that these are the cheapest resources and that coal is getting more expensive. That's the main takeaway that we want people to take from this, this research. So, Mike, I expect that maybe when the next coal crossover report comes, it will, that, that one coal plant in Wyoming may, may look a little different. Um, we're going to let the numbers speak for themselves. You know, I, I don't, I don't know where things are going to go, but I think the fact that the Inflation Reduction Act incentives are durable for the next ten years mean that the trend we've observed is is not going anywhere fast. I mean, hopefully, we can uh, solve a lot of these transmission and interconnection issues in the meantime, and paint a slightly more optimistic picture of of where the grid is headed, and you know whether we can meet a lot of our climate goals. Mike O'Boyle is Senior Director of Electricity Policy at Energy Innovation. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. That is all for the show. Thanks for listening. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Go to postscriptmedia.com, sign up for our email, and you'll get all of our pods funneled to your email box each week. Go to canarymedia.com and sign up for their newsletter, and you'll get this podcast, Catalyst, and all the other great journalism at Canary. Alexandria Herr is our wonderful producer. She helped produce and write this episode. Sean Marquand is our engineer. He also scored our theme song. Original music also came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. We are supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude's a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors. That's advanced energy, food and ag, transportation, logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Please uh, take a moment to share this episode with a colleague or friend. If, if this speaks to you or you think it would speak to someone else, go ahead and send them a link. Word of mouth is actually really important for us for growing this show. You can also hit us up on social media with some commentary. We like your thoughts. And, of course, throw us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. That's hugely helpful, too. And we're so grateful to have you with us. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>